From Harris Studios, this is Accounting for Tomorrow, an accounting and advisory services podcast for community leaders with a passion for change. We are ready to look past the numbers and ensure that today's planning efforts create success for tomorrow. Well, welcome to our podcast, and I'd like to start with introducing our guest today. We have Holt Aga in. He's the Vice President of Leasing for BVA. Give us a little bit of background on yourself and what brought you to BVA and the industry. Yeah, thanks for having me, Josh. So I started my career in the world of finance, middle market commercial banking. From there, I worked for a company called Gardner Company as an asset manager and worked with a lot of the guys I work with now, actually, Tommy Alquist, Ryan Cleverly, Mark Cleverly, Tom Alquist Sr. Five of us ended up, you know, leaving Gardner Company and starting BVA development in 2018. And so from there, I moved from this finance operations role to more of a transaction role, which is leasing and development. And so that's kind of what I've been doing for the last five years. And it's been a lot of fun. Awesome. Today's topic is just about the industry in general and commercial, not only construction, but also leasing in our value and what we see and what we see around the country. But to start, everyone sees BVA in the market. You guys are doing some of the largest and kind of most visible projects across our valley. Just give us an update on what's going on at BVA. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll back up a little bit, actually. So when we started this company called Ball Ventures Alquist, we had a lot of ideas of we had you know five-year plan and all this stuff. And we started looking at other markets and we went to Kennewick. We were down in Salt Lake City. We were looking at other markets. We say, we, you know, we love Boise. We know Boise very well. But if we really want to do what we're trying to do, we need to kind of expand the footprint. So after we underwrote these markets, we investigated these markets, we were like, we don't need to go anywhere, right? We're staying in the Treasure Valley. We believe in the Treasure Valley. We know the Treasure Valley. And so from there, we just, we focused all of our resources on the market that we know. And so what you see now is sort of the outcome of that decision where our strategy really a bunch of guys that focused on office high-rise development in downtown Boise all of a sudden our thesis sort of moved to this you know suburban office large-scale mixed-use narrative that focused on the I-84 corridor which is why you know visibility and all this it's by design right it's you know these are just large projects and we like to think that we're really good at picking those specific submarkets that are going to be very successful yeah. So when you guys started BVA, I think the market was probably a little bit different than where we currently are. It was. Yeah. Right. And so it'd be interesting, like a lot of what you guys are doing is ground up, finding the projects, building the projects, and then leasing the projects. And I think throughout that entire process, if we just break it down, a lot of things have probably changed, not only since you started, but probably in just the last six to 12 months. So yeah. as we look at that, the first part is just finding the land, finding the projects. What are you guys seeing in that area here in our valley? I think just fundamentally what you're seeing with land is that, A, it's appreciating dramatically. I mean, everybody's heard this adage, land's something they're not making more of, right? So there's kind of this like frenzy that sort of happens, especially when you get this huge funnel of demand into a market like ours, where land is the easiest thing to buy and underwrite. From a transaction timeline standpoint, you can go pick it up and with a 10-day close. There's very little due diligence. It's just pick it up. And so there's a lot of transactions that happen, but the land values have appreciated dramatically. And so real estate development, when you boil it all down, it really 
kind of centers around basis, right? Project basis, and which is a fancy way of saying cost, right? And right. so the land component of any development project is fairly sizable percentage of the overall cost. And so when you look at land, A, is it strategically located, but B, can you actually underwrite a project where it makes sense with the price of land that has now basically doubled in the last three and a half years? Right. And you have the price of land increasing. And then I know you guys not only have an internal general contractor, but then you also use a lot of other general contractors and people throughout the valley and to help build your projects. Because once you get the land, you still have to build the building. How have those costs trended over the last couple of years? And where do you kind of see them going? Gosh, that's a million dollar question. Yeah. <laughs> Got to ask Matt Guho that question. Right. Yeah. There you, go. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. I would just say in a nutshell, it's the wild west right now. You know, it's kind of schizophrenic. The two key drivers of construction costs or vertical costs are labor and materials. And both component is a derivative of supply and demand, right? So they're each subjective in terms of how they're influenced by supply and demand. So when one, it seems like right now, when you have some relief in one component, the other moves as a counterpoint in the other direction and vice versa. And so it's just kind of all over the place. And I think a lot of it depends on the size of the project, the relationships you have with the general contractors, because a lot of times if it's a smaller project, maybe just if you're looking to build a 10,000 square foot building or something smaller, a TI, a, a tenant improvement, and you take it out to three contractors, you're going to get bids back and you're trying to pick an apparent low, but the range is all over the place because some of these guys are so busy. They're just like, I won't do this unless I have a 40% margin. So then you get this number, that's this huge outlier. So it's just a lot of its relationships to make sure that the numbers you're getting are good, but we've got in-house construction team. And this is a group of some of the best in the business that are in our construction department. And so, you know, Corey Hall heading that department, it's just, these guys can vet it out as well as it'll be vetted, but it's all over the place. And then you've got this sort of outlier, which is the Micron project, right? Right. I think we all know what's going to happen and what's already happening because we've sort of seen it in the trades, but I have no idea where that's going to land. Yeah, it's just definitely the unknown for this valley, the scope of the amount of money that they're going to spend and the number of trades and just how it ripples through the entire economy will definitely be interesting to see. Yeah, You have all these projects and you have smaller, you know, 10,000 square foot TIs and much larger, you know, buildings and you have construction costs, you have mm -hmm. land, you have all these different variables. And then in the last 12 months, we decided to throw in a, an interest rate and really make funding quite a bit harder for a lot of these entities. How have you seen that impact some of your projects? Because when I drive around town, it, projects are still getting done. Yeah. But that interest rate change is pretty dramatic when you look at the cost part of these projects. Yeah. I guess there's two answers to the question. The first would be like a from a client standpoint. The second would be from like a real estate mm -hmm. standpoint. I think the biggest thing from a real estate standpoint is when you know what the interest rate is or you've got relatively stable interest rates, you can underwrite a project with a decent level of confidence in what that number is going to be. Where people got caught off guard and have been getting caught off guard, obviously, is when there's fluctuations in interest rates during the construction mm -hmm. phase of a project. And it's those fluctuations that happen that can obviously put you in a really bad spot where additional capital is required. You've got to maybe you know increase a lease rate you know, beyond what the market can support. And it just creates a level of risk from a development standpoint. When these changes happen midway through a project and you've underwritten at six and a half percent, and now all of a sudden you're at eight and a half percent, 200 basis points on some of these 
large scale office buildings that we're doing is a half a million bucks, right? Just on the construction loan. Right. So it's significant. And especially when you can't plan for it, I think it, especially in the last 12 months or since last May, it's caught a lot of people off guard. Still seems though that they're caught off guard, but at least here locally, they've been able to adapt and things are still pushing forward. Yeah. Yeah. Again, this all filters through kind of this funnel, right? And I think it still remains to be seen, but I think generally there's not a lot of players in our market are well capitalized. In the last 12 months, there really haven't been the supply. is not what it was two years ago. I think it remains to be seen, but it, it creates a lot of heartburn and additional capital in a lot of cases for great projects. So I guess from a client standpoint, if you're a small business trying to get an SBA loan, right? And SBA indexed mm-hmm. on Prime. Prime was at three and a quarter back in early 2020. It's at right. eight and a half now. That's unbelievable. Right. <laughs> and then you've got your spread that the bank's going to charge. You're at double digits. You know, you're 10 and a half percent on interest rate. Whereas two and a half years ago, you were at five and a half. Yeah. I mean, back just a few years ago, interest rates really weren't that impactful. Right. They were so low that they were just another little piece of the puzzle, but it didn't really impact anything. Now they're high enough where they have a significant impact on small businesses and their decisions on whether or not to do the project. So you guys have built these beautiful buildings and these projects and, but let's switch over to the leasing side, right? Cause you guys go from beginning all the way to the end, which I think is somewhat unique too, but you look around the country and leasing and vacancy rates, it, it just seems dramatically different than what we see here in our value. I was reading one report, vacancy rates were north of 20% national and they're closer to 10% here. So what are you guys seeing from a leasing standpoint this year? What are you seeing next year? Yeah, I, I would just say in one word, you know, fortunate. Anybody operating in, in this market, it has been very fortunate. There's data that's, depending on the market you're looking at, it's 20%. It's double that in some markets. I don't think anybody's naive enough to think that there's not going to be externalities or we somehow are insulated in the long term from these national trends, but their loss has been our gain. We see it day in, day out where companies are leaving these primary markets. They're leaving Chicago. They're leaving mostly the coastal markets all over California, Portland, Seattle, and businesses are leaving those markets. Those markets downtown largely have been gutted, but a lot of those companies are coming to Boise. So I think when you look at the duality between these primary markets and in our market, which is a tertiary market, it sort of benefited us at least to this point because our vacancy rates are very low. They're actually lower than 10%. Oh. I mean, there's different real estates, you know, defined in different asset classes. Mm-hmm. For example, in office space, you've got A, B, C classes, mm-hmm. right? You've got downtown suburban, and then you've got sub markets that define a geographic area. The vacancy rates across all of those different areas and different factors vary, but I think total for our market is about seven and a half percent, which is an, an incredibly healthy office market, regardless of anything else you look at long-term. That's great to hear about our market. You just sometimes wonder like when will those national markets start to impact us, but it kind of sounds like it's benefiting us at least to date of what they're going through. We had the pandemic. We had a lot of companies change their model, work from home a little bit more, do different virtual office spaces. So I just wondered, like, they have empty spaces. How's the sublease market? What have you guys just seen around the the valley? That's a great question because sublease space, shadow vacancy is another. These are things that if you look at a vacancy report, those numbers don't show up in this data, right? So you have to go do a little more digging to figure out the whole story, if you will. 
But sublease space, especially the beginning of last year, sort of spiked, which was really interesting because shortly after that, and they've kind of tapered off. They've kind of, it was stable, you know, at about 600,000 square feet, I think, in our market for total sublease space. It's slightly below that. That's kind of this floor that was established. What's interesting is that there is some sublease space on the market. In our portfolio, what we've seen is that all the sublease space that was on the market, at least the larger sublease space, there's been small, you know, three to four or 5,000 square foot spaces. But the bigger companies, the multinationals, the, I mean, the Paylocities, the United Site Services, Ameribin, Lidos, these are companies that had large portions of their office on the market for sublease. And they ended up during the course of last year, taking all of that sublease space off the market. All of these companies, at one point they said, hey, people are going to work from home forever, probably. Mm-hmm. Well, forever was like a year and a half. <laughs> and so some form of hybrid work is where right. this thing's kind of landed at the current moment. But in our portfolio, the sublease space, for the most part, the companies have taken it back and are now occupying it. Oh, that's good. You guys have helped us with our space and we have a kind of a hybrid model. We have people work from home and work here. One of the cool things we did as we moved into our space is your guys help in designing a space that we want to be at, right? Like going beyond just a typical, let's build you an office space, let's build it, but trying to help us innovate our space into something that we really want to be part of and it shows who we are. Talk a little bit about that because you guys do that for a lot of your clients. And I think that's kind of the, not that leasing and the cost rates and interest rates aren't exciting for me, but that's, <laughs> that's, that's probably the more exciting part of what you guys are going to do with some of your clients. For sure. And yeah, you guys, I mean, you knocked it out of the park, obviously for anybody who's been in your space. I mean, this is exactly what you're trying to create, right? You get these these collaborative areas, you get the little putting green out there, right? You get the break room area that's sort of uh, functionally incorporated into the entire space where synergies, discussions, the ideas happen, right? And they're formed. And so, yeah, you've been through the process, you know what it can be. And I think that's what the fun part of the, the job is when we're involved in that discussion. And as you mentioned, we're fully vertically integrated from design. We've got an in-house architecture team. Brad Smith heads our design team. We've got in-house construction. Corey Hall heads our construction. We've got leasing, development, internal, but then property management. So from start to finish, we've got every piece of the process sort of vetted, right? And so when you sort of plug into that discussion, it's really a deep dive. And you saw that with Brad, right? And mm-hmm. yep. where it's just understanding exactly what you're trying to create because you have this blank canvas. So if you remember your space when it was, it's gray shell, right? This first generation space, right. concrete floor, some windows, right? Some structural beams, and that's it. The rest is sort of, what are you going to do with this space? I think as you see companies come in and at the top of everybody's radar is, hey, we all know what the labor market is right now. It's tight. Employee retention, recruitment is huge, right? Like getting people into the office to collaborate, to increase productivity, the the generation of ideas, all the things we all know, right? The social component. It's just going through that process and sort of having this idea come to life that embodies the culture similar to what you've done here with your space. And it's great when we have companies come in to actually show off, if you will, kind of you guys are going to hear at Harris and, and some of the other really nice build outs because everybody does things a little differently, right? right? And different ideas turn into different things. And so when we start working with a company and we take them to five or six different spaces at two or three different projects, and it's almost like this, hey, I love the way that 
Coldwell Banker did their break room. I love that. I want to take that. Or Capital 11 did this, you know, their war room. It's really cool. I want to do that. A lot of it is just creating that culture that you want your employees to experience when they come to the office and to get them to come into the office. Right. I think creating that space that embraces your culture and who you are as a company and then your employees buy into that. Right. I think you mentioned a couple of firms that, that have their employees coming back to their office. Right. And I don't know if they would see the same kind of trend if they hadn't built out spaces like that. So yeah. it's definitely a big part of that process. So as we look forward into 2024, we start talking about doing tax planning and stuff like that. You know, what <laughs> we think is fun, but you know, and we're trying at the same time to not just look backwards, but look forwards. I'm thinking from what you've said. So far today, we've got all these people coming here. It probably means other developers are coming to our area to probably disrupt your plans a little bit and, and making you adapt and change. But with all those factors that we talked about, like what are you guys looking forward to in 2024? What do you see coming down the, the pipeline? You know, from a macro standpoint, talking about supply and demand factors, let's just, I don't think we see demand slowing down. Boise is a very attractive market. There's some headwinds. Cost of living isn't what it used to be. I mean, five years ago, it was the median income versus your cost of living was substantially more favorable than it is now. I mean, just finding housing. If you get a big company that moves to town, Micron, for example, is asking the same thing. They got tens of thousands of employees. They're talking about where do they live? It's a huge issue right now. And we've actually had companies not come to our market because of the housing issue the affordability, but then also just finding hmm. places to live and for their employees. And so there's headwinds in the market. Projects are harder to put together. And so I mean, that's, that's been something you guys have started putting housing yeah, in, in some our of your developments, just in this development that we're sitting in right now, you've got yeah. housing coming. And I know, I think out in 10 mile, don't you guys have some yeah. housing out there? It's a huge, a huge factor, not only for the project itself, but as a check the box for employees that don't want to own a car, they want to live and then walk to work and walk over to lunch at the retail, mm -hmm. wherever. So we kind of focus on these built environments that allow for that. Again, there's just fewer projects. So the supply side of the equation has been muted because it's just not as easy to do these projects. We're looking at a big project right now, just west of 10 mile, and you've got to take down this large swath of land. It's like another 10 mile where we say, hey, we know this is going to be an eight to 10 year project, probably. And we know that going in, but you take down a piece of land that size, there's ways to make projects work, but it's still, it's just harder. So I think it just affects the supply side. And that's why I think when you see like vacancy rates in our market, they're still really low because there just hasn't been a lot that's been built, at least in the office sector, the industrial sector. We can, that's a whole nother can of worms and multifamily is a whole nother. We don't do much multifamily, but at least for office, I think we see that it's, it's going to be relatively stable for the foreseeable future because supply is, is, you know, constrained for new product. And then the trends that were in place long, even before COVID, where there's this flight to quality, if you will, there's this movement towards class A office product. And so we don't see that trend stopping. And so it kind of hits our bullseye, if you will. So that's, I think, more difficult than it's been. But in terms of being anywhere in the country, I think it's as favorable as it could be. Yeah, it sounds exciting. It sounds like we're going to stay busy or the demand's going to stay there in our market. It'll just be interesting to see all these moving pieces, right? The Micron, you know, other companies that might come in, you guys will probably be at the heart of some of them. And it'll just be interesting to see how our Valley will adapt to that kind of movement. Well, we got some really nice projects that we're bringing to market. 
here over the course of the next two years. It'll be coming out of the ground that we're pretty excited about. But you probably can't tell us right now about them. Well, I could, you know, I mean, <laughs> like the next top golf surprise. Yeah, or, no, yeah. that was a that was a tough. That was that really was tough. The, the full story of that was it's a pretty crazy story that with like right in the heart of COVID, right? right? But but no, I mean, we're excited to be back downtown. For example, we haven't done a downtown project really since City Center Plaza when we were with Gardner Company mm-hmm. when we did the Clearwater Building, right? And then, you know, Eighth and Main Tommy developed that back in 2013, and so we've got this 13 story tower downtown that we're doing in partnership with ICCU. And so we're definitely excited for projects like that. We sort of are back to our roots, if you will. And that, for example, is going to be a great project. We won the bid for the CWI project, which would be awesome. And then there's there's a handful of others out here that are kind of hit this strategy that we've been implementing out along the I-84 corridor out near 10 Mile, North Ranch 2 over in Caldwell. So things like that, that we're still looking ahead and we remain bullish and barring any material changes in the existing environment, like another major interest rate hike (laughs) midway through projects or something, we're still getting projects done. Awesome. Yeah. That's great. It's exciting. Well, thank you, Holt, for coming on and sharing us. I know we have a lot of real estate and contractors and people in our community that are kind of in your ecosystem as well. And, And it's always great to hear from someone who's kind of got their pulse on the market and kind of telling us where, where things are going and Good luck in 2024. Yeah. Likewise, Josh. Appreciate it, man. Let's go hit the golf course. (laughs) Thank you for listening to Harris CPA's Accounting for Tomorrow. Stay tuned for new episodes each month. Podcasts are also available on our website at harriscpas.com slash podcasts. Any accounting business or tax advice contained in this podcast is not intended as a thorough in-depth analysis of specific issues, nor a substitute for a formal opinion nor is it sufficient to avoid tax-related penalties. If you'd like, Harris CPAs would be pleased to perform the research and provide you with a detailed analysis of your specific situation.